I'm Kelsey. I'm Cassie. And I'm Nolan from SCP Weekly. We bring you news from on-site and off-site. And we share your love for the creative community that surrounds the SCP Wiki. Join us on Tuesdays for new episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, or on YouTube at SCP Weekly. The world we inhabit is not as free, or certain, or safe as you might think. The things that you believe to be unassailably evident are little more than shadows dancing behind a curtain, a masquerade crafted and dutifully upheld by an organization known as the Foundation. The file you are about to hear contains containment procedures, descriptions, testing logs, historical and in some cases first-hand accounts of the anomalous objects the Foundation serves to secure, contain, and protect. Its contents have been thoroughly scrutinized by the Ethics Committee and approved by the O5 Council for release to trusted associates of the Foundation. This is SCP Unredacted. Item number, SCP-6937. Object class, Thaumiel. Euclid. Special Containment Procedures. To prevent SCP-6937's dislocation, as well as further fatalities, a suitable replacement weaver must be installed within one hour of the previous tenant's demise. Ordinarily, weavers expire 37 days after installation. Otherwise, a standard clean room of adequate size will suffice to contain the anomaly. However, access to the anomaly's tapestry threads, whether directly or through the weaver's neural feed, is without exception restricted to approved Project Anonki personnel. Any unapproved persons who learn of the anomaly's premonitions are to be purged of all pertinent knowledge through Class A amnestics. Description SCP-6937 resembles a mid-19th century Jacquard loom. Its wooden frame measures 2.5 meters in height, 2.1 meters in length, and 1.7 meters in width. Its components predominantly consist of mundane cedar and wrought iron. However, closer inspection reveals three major deviations from all other known jacquard-type looms. First, the selectable hooks that carry the warp threads down to the securing wire heddles are so densely arrayed as to prove uncountable, even under omnispectral imaging. They are also positioned unusually close to the weaver's chair, so that the weaver may gaze into the selected forward warp threads as into the screen of a computer terminal. Second, Set into the breast beam over the take-up roll is a control panel with three adjustable knobs. These knobs, with the aid of the foot pedals, allow the weaver to change the composition of the warp, raise or lower the lateral shuttle, and move the weft thread's point of intersection with the warp. Third, seven massive spider legs spring from a gap in the housing structure mounted on the frame. When a new weaver sits in the anomaly's chair, these legs respond by sewing strands of silken thread into the weaver's wrists, ankles, and nape. Five of the legs remain attached to their respective wrist, ankle, or neck threads for the duration of the weaver's tenure. They hover over and seem to control the weaver's movements like a marionettist's fingers. The remaining two spider legs curl back in strike position at the flanks. They remain motionless there unless called upon to impale a would-be interloper with their baited tips. Rather than chitin, the leg segments consist of wrought iron. If they are mechanical, though, it is unknown how they are powered. Only thread 
has been observed to move through the joint cavities. The anomaly's main anomalous property manifests through its fortune-telling procedure, which it initiates whenever a human subject, other than a prospective weaver, first approaches it. This procedure has three steps. 1. Without looking, the weaver, acting as the anomaly's living mouthpiece, greets the subject by name. 2. The weaver adjusts the three control panel knobs and gazes into the resulting point of intersection between the forward warp, the shuttle, and weft thread. 3. The weaver describes an event taking place at an exact time in the subject's near future. The foretold event is always one of catastrophic personal tragedy for the subject. Usually, both the subject and the subject's closest loved ones, if the subject has any, are described as suffering previous trauma and death. Most subjects naturally feel compelled to avoid this fate by any means necessary. Regardless of how ostensibly foolproof the preventative measures taken have been, though, all 373 of the 373 foretold events documented under containment have transpired exactly as described. Moreover, in all instances where an attempt was made to prevent the foretold event, it was this very attempt that caused the event to occur. Refer to the experiment log for detailed examples. Nevertheless, incredibly, Project Denanki has found no evidence that the anomaly alters reality in any physical, psychic, or metaphysical fashion so as to force fulfillment of its prophecies. History On 13 January 2019, the Department of Analytics flagged the village of Estonia for investigation. Researchers had noticed a positive 0.9 correlation coefficient between the village's abnormally high rate of accidental death among visitors and its windfall gains in community resources. Given that material evidence in most cases strongly corroborated the finding of accident as the manner of death, suspicion fell to an anomalous culprit. On 17 January 2019, two field agents posing as tourists arrived in the village. Proprietors and patrons alike at the cafe, via, and post office all insisted that the agents visit their village's so-called main attraction. The attraction seemed to consist in having one's fortune told by a weaver woman at a derelict textile mill. The agents accepted the villagers' offer to escort them to the mill. Sister Nock, a village matriarch, and ostensibly an old ritualist Rassifor, met the agents there. She led them inside and introduced them to the anomaly. The anomaly immediately told both agents their fortunes via the weaver installed at that time. Agent Casey was told that in 29 hours, both she and her five-year-old twin sons would burn to death at her residence. Agent Sidorov was told that in 53 hours, he and seven field personnel under his supervision, including his ongoing surreptitious romantic partner, would all have succumbed to hypothermia after icy burial by an avalanche. These prognostications, which included the correct names and details of those concerned, naturally disturbed the agents greatly, although they managed to maintain focus on their task for the time being. Next, the anomaly promised to cooperate fully with the Foundation's investigation. It explained that it was the focus of an oracle cult called the Web of Mother Twilight. Notwithstanding the Web's protective obsession with the anomaly, which they believed to be the avatar of the spider goddess Mother Twilight, the Foundation would be granted open access to secure and contain it. This was because the anomaly had already instructed the Web not to interfere. The anomaly stated that in return, the Foundation would agree to uphold two duties. One, 
supply it with new weavers, whom the web would recruit and deliver to field agents. 2. Allow the web to persist in its activities unmolested. Were the foundation not to uphold both of these duties, the anomaly could simply dislocate. It immediately demonstrated its ability to do so by disappearing from the mill for seven minutes. Upon return, the anomaly claimed that its proposal would be accepted and that it would await its containment by the foundation on 19 January. The anomaly then dismissed the agents and Sister Nock led them back out of the mill. Sister Nock thereupon began providing thorough testimony to the agents regarding the inception and spread of the web, the web's current activities, and the anomaly's advent in the village. In brief, the anomaly first appeared in 1997, shortly after an 11-year-old girl from an itinerant Romani family had been found murdered in the mill. The mill had closed three years prior, causing the village to enter a period of economic desperation and crime. The villagers' initial encounters with the anomaly resulted in dozens of fatalities. Finally, Sister Nock, as the last surviving clergy member at the village's old ritualist church, and thus the de facto community leader, went to the anomaly with a plea. If the anomaly would spare the village further death and misfortune, the villagers would transform the church into a cult dedicated to worshipping and obeying it. The anomaly had anticipated this plea. It agreed, after making a few amendments. Following the consecration of this founding covenant of the web of Mother Twilight, the anomaly began instructing the villagers to procure outsiders as subjects for fortune-telling sessions. Conveniently, the ensuing deaths resulted in financial gains for the village. The anomaly also sometimes sent select members of the web to various unknown locations abroad with secret instructions. Just as the anomaly had predicted, the Foundation accepted its proposed arrangement, though only after some debate. The major objection raised at the meeting held on the matter was that the Foundation would be party to the torment and murder of innocent creative people enlisted as weavers. In return, the Foundation would gain the containment of what was at the time thought to be merely a discreetly hazardous anomaly i.e. of lamb disruption class object. This objection was answered by further intelligence on the allocation of weavers gleaned from Sister Knox's testimony. To wit, prospective weavers always freely submitted to the anomaly's terminal conditions after they had directly or indirectly seen the loom threats. In fact, barring forcible restraint, they could not be turned away from their appointed time at the anomaly. Since the web would carry out the recruitment of weavers anyway, it was deemed preferable for them to at least do so with the anomaly under containment. Thus, the Foundation scheduled pickup by an automated retrieval and transport unit for 19 January. During these deliberations, unfortunately, both Agent Casey and Agent Sidorov had severed contact with the Foundation and disappeared from the site. This occurred despite reassurances by Foundation security that their respective loved ones would be provided thorough protective sequestering against the fulfillment of the anomaly's premonitions. Agent Casey called her husband and left voicemail messages for him while she was en route to her home in Scotland aboard a commercial airliner. Due to the Baltic Air Service's outdated base station transmitter, her messages became garbled. As a result, her husband understood her to be saying, keep the boys at the house, rather than keep the boys out of the house. Foundation security had already moved the twins out of the Casey residence and put them in protective custody. Agent Casey's husband's request to move them back was denied. He took desperate action in response, wounding two guards and absconding with the twins. Agent Casey's phone was confiscated in flight due to her repeated restricted calls. Thus, as she rushed to her residence after landing, she was unable to check with her husband that the twins were not there. 
in any event, her husband was, at that time, in their backyard, getting into another altercation with Foundation guards sent to retrieve the twins. Agent Casey entered her house through the front door. She quickly located her children in the living room, where they were watching a movie. Moments later, one of the guards, in an attempt to subdue the husband with an experimental stun weapon, accidentally ignited the propane in a tank connected to a gas main. An explosion erupted under the house. Agent Casey and her children were incapacitated by the splintering floor and the flame-engulfed walls and furniture. They burned to death a few minutes later. The time was 16.03 hours, 18 January, exactly 29 hours after the agent's meeting with the anomaly. Meanwhile, Agent Sidorov had departed in the opposite direction, to the mountain Kolatshakal in northern Russia. Prior to being called up for the investigation in Estonia, Agent Sidorov had been supervising a team of field researchers at the remote outpost Liko 3 on Kolatshakal, near the site of the infamous Jatlov Pass incident. As this area is prone to avalanches, the anomaly's premonition caused Agent Sidorov to fear for his teammates' lives. Foundation security, on the other hand, instructed the team to remain hunkered down in the outpost reinforced Quonset hut for the next three days, regardless of what they heard from Agent Sidorov. Indeed, an Arctic blizzard had already begun sweeping down the Urals. While en route in a private jet from Tallinn to Perm, Agent Sidorov spoke to field researcher Tatiana Rychenkova, who was serving as the team lead in Sidorov's absence. She also happened to be his two-year romantic partner. Agent Sidorov repeated what the anomaly had said and told her to evacuate the outpost in the team's snowcat. She, in turn, expressed concern for his safety due to his plan to meet them at the mountain's base camp. Her connection then cut out in the blizzard. Researcher Rychenkova decided to drive the team in the snowcat to a lower elevation station with a heavy-lift transport helicopter so as to expedite the last leg of the journey to the base camp. The team succeeded in reaching this vehicle and lifting off. Simultaneously, Agent Sidorov was driving to the base camp in an off-road utility truck acquired at the airport. He re-established communication with researcher Rychenkova as they both neared the camp. When the helicopter set down, the force of its twin-rotor downwash dislodged an ice sheet on an adjacent slope. This caused an avalanche to bury both vehicles under three meters of ice. By 16-19 hours, 19 January, 53 hours after the anomaly's premonition, life functions had ceased for all team members. After these events that claimed the lives of nine Foundation employees and two children, in exact accordance with the anomaly's forecasts and because of the best efforts of all concerned to prevent them, an additional meeting was held. Project Ananki was the result. The project's remit was to test the limits of the anomaly's prognosticative power so as either to defeat its predictions or to discover the mechanism by which it achieved their fulfillment. Thus, the anomaly received a provisional Thaumiel class designation preliminary to finding a means to exploit it and contingent on definitively establishing that it possessed perfect prescience without recourse to reality bending or psychic influence. Experiment Log For all 367 experiments conducted throughout the fortune-telling sessions and the test subjects' ensuing activities, Project Ananki maintained comprehensive video and neural feed coverage as well as constantly monitoring Hume, Actenic, Tachyon, and saw lung levels. To limit collateral damage from the anomaly's premonitions, D-class individuals were selected to serve as test subjects, only if they lacked any familial or convivial connections. 
The experiment's general scheme consisted of introducing a D-class subject to the anomaly for a fortune-telling session and endeavoring, by various methods, to prevent the fulfillment of the resulting premonition. The aim of this scheme was to falsify the hypothesis that the anomaly possesses perfect knowledge of an inexorably predetermined future, or in failing to do so, provide support for this hypothesis. Experiment number E6937-13 Date, 1 March, 2019 Time, 0701 hours Subject, D71129 A 31-year-old male sentenced to death for committing mass homicide with a homemade flamethrower at his own wedding. The victims include his bride and all of his friends and immediate relatives. Since his arrest, conviction, and transfer to the Foundation, he had only spoken one word, melt. Weaver. Weaver 1, a 17-year-old Nepalese apprentice dressmaker at her family's atelier. Members of the web delivered her to a field agent in Amargadi. Hypothesis. Given that all of the observed fulfillments of the anomaly's premonitions had occurred directly by virtue of the very efforts made to avoid them, it was conjectured that if no effort at all was made to avoid the predicted terminal event, it would not occur. Procedure. Introduce the subject to the anomaly and record the resulting premonition. Regardless of the terminal event predicted, ensure by the best available means that no action is taken to avoid it. The Anomaly Statement and Vision The anomaly stated that the subject would die in 13 hours. While walking down a hallway adjacent to Test Lab 37CX3, the subject would become the collateral victim of an anomalous testing fiasco involving SCP and SCP. A dimensionally refracting field extending through the lab's wall would transport him to a pocket world and infuse his body with a lethal substance. An explosion in the lab would end this refraction effect and kill several researchers, including the spouse of Dr. Quintrala, Project Denonki's first assistant lead, Dr. Eliza Q, the team lead in Test Lab 37 CX3. The neural feed showed a bewildered subject standing in a cylindrical stone room with a cylindrical pillar. Moments later, a greenish-brown fluid erupted out of his mouth, nose, and ears. His flesh began dissolving, and his body collapsed. The image flickered, and the subject's remains were briefly seen on the floor of a Site-37 hallway before a wave of flame engulfed them. Response Dr. Tanzler, Project Lead, and Dr. Newcomb, Second Assistant Lead, after speaking with Site-37's director, agreed to stay the course and do nothing to prevent the fulfillment of the premonition despite the impending loss of life and damage to Foundation facilities. The subject was amnesticized to prevent him from attempting to avoid the hallway, where he was predicted to meet his demise. Meanwhile, it was decided to sequester Dr. Quintrala, who had been away at the time of the anomaly's premonition, for the remainder of the test period to prevent her from contacting her spouse or interrupting the test lab's activities. Result Unfortunately, Dr. Quintrala had accessed the premonition footage in her office before her clearance could be suspended. Upon finding that communication with her spouse had been blocked, she armed herself with an M4 carbine from a weapons locker, just as the security detail sent to sequester her reached her office. In the ensuing altercation, Dr. Quintrala was shot and killed. The project prevented news of her death from reaching Dr. Eliza Q. Meanwhile, the subject was successfully amnesticized and returned to his cell, Later that day, the subject was released to a recreation area, where he spent 120 minutes staring at the ceiling. 
At 19.59 hours, he was ordered to return to his cell. The route from the recreation area to his cell included the stretch of hallway that passed behind the north wall of the test lab. In this lab, Dr. Eliza Q, together with five research assistants, was conducting a cross-testing experiment on two extra-dimensional artifacts, SCP, a small tetrahedral object with mirrored faces that when touched revealed the outcomes of a subject's divergent choices in five parallel timelines, and SCP, a red disc that when placed on a mirrored surface opened a portal into a parallel world. The test involved placing SCP on one of the faces of SCP in order to see how different types of dimensional gates interact. At 20.01 hours, the subject entered the stretch of hallway seen in the anomaly's neural feed. Simultaneously, Dr. Eliza Q placed SCP on the SCP face oriented toward the lab's north wall. A pyramidal spatial anomaly with approximately 10 meter edge lengths opened through the disc and passed through the lab's north wall into the section of hallway occupied by the subject. Five other parallel versions of the subject in this section of the hallway were then refractively projected from SCP other faces as identical pyramidal spatial anomalies superimposed onto corresponding areas in the lab. These projected versions of the subject and the hallway section fused with Dr. Eliza Q, the five research assistants, and the lab's ceiling, floor, walls, and testing equipment. This quickly resulted in the deaths of both the parallel versions of the subject and all of the lab personnel as their bodies intersected with and were forced apart by slabs of concrete and various conduit segments. Meanwhile, the camera clip to the original subject revealed that he had been relocated into a cylindrical stone room with a cylindrical pillar in its center. A greenish-brown fluid began streaming from his mouth, nose, and ears, and his flesh dissolved. In the lab, a fused piece of equipment's chemical tank burst through a live power line, causing an explosion that knocked SCP away from SCP. The subject's body reappeared on the floor of the hallway just before the lab's north wall exploded outward and buried it. The hallway's CCTV feed cut out at 20.05 hours. Conclusion The primary conclusion to be drawn here is that action taken to prevent the fulfillment of one of the anomaly's premonitions is not a necessary component of its fulfillment. It may be that such would-be preventative action must always contribute to its fulfillment, but the fulfillment clearly is not avoided by the absence of such action. In this case, it seems as though Dr. Quintrala could easily have prevented the incident in the test lab had she been allowed to communicate with her spouse, such that our failure to act can be said to have precipitated the premonition's fulfillment. In addition, there are several significant corollary conclusions to be drawn from this case due to the anomalous circumstances of the terminal event. First, the anomaly's provision is clearly not limited to our universe, as the neural feed showed the subject in the pocket universe. Second, since this event also served to refract the subject into multiple parallel selves, all of whom died before the original subject, it may be concluded that the anomaly's provision follows the single lifeline of a subject to its endpoint, even when the subject is replicated. That is, as far as the anomaly is concerned, duplicating or cloning events do not disrupt the lifeline's path. Third, since SCP allows one to retrocausally choose an optimal path, by viewing one's near futures in parallel timelines. The outcome in this case implies that the anomaly's provision is one of the final endpoint after all possible efforts at changing one's fate have been frustrated. In other words, even by backward temporal action, 
What the anomaly foresees cannot be avoided. Experiment number E6937-71, date 17 September 2019, time 10.01 hours. Subject D32993, a 73-year-old male sentenced to death for murdering and eating a series of urban explorers who ventured into the abandoned subway shaft that he had been inhabiting for over three decades. He had no known living relatives and only spoke in unintelligible grunts. At breakfast on 17 September, the subject began exhibiting severely labored breathing. Foundation medical staff conducted an examination shortly thereafter and detected a tumorous growth in the subject's trachea. The growth had progressed to a stage where death by asphyxiation had a 97% probability of occurring within 24 hours. However, since the tumor remained benign, a standard excision operation could remove it with relative ease, giving the subject an equally high likelihood of survival. Weaver Weaver 7 An 89-year-old Peruvian woodcarver who was persuaded to abandon her market stall for the first time in five decades when web members showed her photographs of the warp threads. Hypothesis All of the observed realizations of the anomaly's premonitions had occurred through ostensibly mundane factors that had not been controlled for. So, it was conjectured that if the predicted cause of death in the subject, in this case an operable cancerous growth, could be fully contained and eliminated, then either the anomaly would use anomalous means to force the fulfillment of its premonition, perhaps by reintroducing the growth through bilocation, or it would allow its premonition to go unfulfilled. Procedure Introduce the subject to the anomaly and record the resulting premonition of the subject's fate. If the subject is predicted to die by asphyxiation from the tumor in his trachea, immediately perform the excision operation, thus ensuring that he will not die in that way. The Anomaly Statement and Vision the anomaly stated that the subject would die by asphyxiation from a tracheal tumor in 11 hours, approximately 2100. The neural feed images showed the subject clutching his throat and collapsing to the floor of his cell. Movement ceased shortly thereafter. Response The subject was immediately moved to Site-37's operating theater, where Foundation surgical staff had been instructed to perform the tracheal tumor excision. Result by 1331 hours, the tumor had been removed without complication through a simple thyrotomic excision, no tracheal resection. The subject was returned to a cell with a stitched and bandaged throat and a strong prognosis for full recovery by the end of the week. At 2059, the video feed of the subject's cell showed him bolting upright from deep sleep he had been in since the surgery. He clutched his throat, hacked violently, and fell to the floor. By the time Foundation EMTs reached him, the subject had died. Attempts at resuscitation failed. The subject's body was moved to the morgue and Project Denaki's medical specialist performed an autopsy at 22.30 hours, attended by the three physicians who had performed the operation on the subject. In the subject's trachea, the medical specialist uncovered a second tumorous growth that had somehow rapidly broken through the cartilage where the first tumor had been. This was deemed the cause of the subject's asphyxiation. When the medical specialist cut into the second growth, a greenish-brown substance was released as a vapor into the room. The medical specialist and three attending physicians clutched their throats and began convulsing. Two minutes later, all of their life functions had ceased. Examinations performed on the bodies via drone 
found that they had all asphyxiated from rapid anomalous growths in their tracheas. The bodies were incinerated and the room was sterilized to prevent further infection. Analysis of a sample of the anomalous vapor matched it with a sample taken from the air in a parallel world that the subject had entered during testing with SCP a week prior. It seems that the substance had lodged in the subject's throat at that time, but its effect was neutralized by the pre-existing mundane tumor already present in its trachea. When this was removed, the dormant substance was allowed to seep out and reactivate. If the subject's mundane tumor had not been removed, the substance would have remained dormant and the doctors would still be alive. Conclusion Because the second tumor was confirmed to have manifested without external intervention and in accordance with the circumstances of the subject's prior exposure, it was concluded that the fulfillment of premonition in this case was again due to factors that had been overlooked in evaluating the situation. This further supports the supposition that the anomaly does indeed possess perfect knowledge of past, present, and future, and that it is through this knowledge alone that it achieves its victories over us. Experiment number E6937-367 Date, 12 August 2022 Time, 08.03 hours Subject, D6537 A 23-year-old female who was sentenced to death for seven homicidal incidents, in which she picked up and threw a child into heavy freeway traffic from an overpass bridge between the children's grade school and neighborhood. Upon arrest, she said that she had done this because she found it to be funny. Orphaned at a young age and raised in a series of abusive foster homes, her extremely antisocial outlook had prevented her from ever forming any meaningful attachments. Weaver Weaver 36 a 29-year-old Bostonian glacier who was running a successful boutique with her sisters when a member of the web approached her on the bus and showed her images of the warp threads. Hypothesis This experiment returns once again to the conjecture that if the predicted cause of death can be fully controlled and all extraneous factors eliminated, either the anomaly will be forced to forego fulfillment of its premonition or it will have to resort to clearly anomalous means of fulfillment. Procedure. Fit the subject with a remote trigger guillotine collar. If the subject is predicted to be immediately decapitated by the collar, disarm and open the collar, ensuring that the subject is not decapitated by it. If the subject is predicted to die in any other fashion, trigger the collar. The anomaly statement and vision. The anomaly stated that in less than a minute the subject would die by decapitation. The neural feed showed the subject's collar being triggered and her head rolling away from her body. Response Dr. Newcomb, who had been charged with operating the collar's remote control from an isolated room, was ordered by Dr. Tanzler via intercom to immediately disarm and open the subject's collar. Instead, Dr. Newcomb triggered the collar's guillotine. The collar's twin two-kilopascal compression spring cleavers were released and the subject's head rolled away from her body exactly as had been shown in the neural feed. Three research assistants and a technical specialist rushed to Dr. Newcomb's isolated room to see what had gone wrong. They discovered him, holding an M4 carbine, later discovered to be the same one Dr. Quintrala had obtained. He said, don't worry, I won't shoot, I won't pull the trigger, it's just the strings. The strings, I never did anything, none of us, ever. And he opened fire, killing his four colleagues and then himself. Conclusion 
Once again, undetected or unappreciated factors have allowed the anomaly to foresee the test subject's fate with precise accuracy, despite our seemingly foolproof checks. In this case, the undetected factor, if it is fair to say undetected since we were all aware of the strain, was the frayed mental state of another assistant lead. Quite naturally, we might conclude the strain to be due to the over 300 tests that have confirmed, again and again, that the anomaly is manipulating our project, our foundation, and perhaps all of humanity, manipulating us through our own compulsive need to believe our choices are our own. Caution. Level 4 security clearance required to access the following document. Transmission of contents to unauthorized persons is prohibited. Special Incident Number F-6937-ZK-1 Date 13 August 2022 Time 0130 Hours Location Site 37 Chamber 6937 Personnel Involved Dr. C. Tanzler Project Lead Research Assistant H. Genoda Technical Specialist J. Lamb Classification ZK Amida class disruption event caused by damage to SCP-6937. At 1700 hours on 12 August, Dr. Tanzler received a memo from Site-37's director in consultation with O5. The memo stated that in light of E-6937-367's disastrous outcome and the generally unproductive results of the preceding three years of experiments, Project Anaki's aim and methodology would receive significant adjustment. This included revoking the anomaly's tentative thaumiel status and designating it Euclid class instead. Moreover, Dr. Tanzler was suspended, pending a replacement as project lead. In response, Dr. Tanzler decided to carry out E6937SX1, an especially risky proposed experiment that had already been rejected by the site director. This experiment involved attempting to disrupt one of the anomaly's premonitions by destroying a section of its warp threads with a particle beam cutter. At 0130 hours, 13 August, Dr. Tanzler ordered technical specialist Lamb and research assistant Anoda to obtain this device and meet him with it inside chamber 6937, contrary to the prohibition against unmediated contact with the anomaly by non-D-class personnel. Despite their misgivings, Lamb and Anoda obeyed. When the three entered the chamber, the anomaly, through Weaver 36, greeted Dr. Tanzler and bid farewell to Lamb and Anoda. Ignoring this, Dr. Tanzler ordered Lamb to activate the cutter and fire a beam into the warp threads. Lamb complied. A split second before the beam was fired, the anomaly swung one of its bladed legs between the path of the beam and its threads. This caused the beam to fork and reflect back at Lamb and Anoda, bisecting and thus killing them both. The anomaly explained that was why it had said farewell instead of greeting them. The anomaly then told Dr. Tanzler his fortune. He would die from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head in 23 hours. Dr. Tanzler scoffed at this and turned to leave. The anomaly urged him to stay. It said that if he wanted to see what happens when the threads are cut, he only had to ask. Dr. Tanzler turned back and watched as the anomaly used the bladed leg it had just deflected the beam with to pull forward and cut three warp threads. The entire facility shook. Level black thread alert klaxons were activated. Dr. Tanzler's emergency comm band went off, 
He answered it and was told by Ryza operatives that the Foundation had entered a ZK end-of-reality scenario. The astrophysics department had detected the sudden disappearance of several thousand galaxies, including Andromeda, from both our universe and parallel continuums. Since they had disappeared retrocausally, erased from their respective timelines, all of multi-universal material history was rapidly unraveling in reverse. Multiple contingency plans were in effect, and RCT Delta T's transtemporal continuity provisions had been initiated. While Dr. Tanzler was listening to this, the anomaly used its two bladed legs to puncture the base of Weaver 36's skull. The legs began extracting brain matter from her cerebellum. One leg excised large segments and pressed them into the other's tip. The second leg's tip then, somehow, pushed the brain matter back into the first leg's tip as a spun fiber. Finally, the first leg moved to the three severed warp threads and joined them back up with the brain fiber. The legs passed back and forth doing this until all three warp threads were repaired and a large section of Weaver 36's cerebellum was missing. The room seemed to contract slightly as if inhaling and the klaxons and tremors all ceased. Dr. Tanzler's emergency line fell silent. When he called back and repeated the message he had received, the RISA operative on the other end told him that no Foundation-wide emergency initiatives had been triggered that day nor had any major astronomical disturbances been reported. However, the video feed recording of Chamber 6937 still showed what Dr. Tanzler had witnessed, despite all other Site 37 recordings now showing nominal activity for that period. RCT Delta T later corroborated this evidence when they discovered an orthogonal dead branch transtemporal record of the ZK-class event. As Dr. Tanzler left the chamber, the anomaly simply stated, that's what happens. Dr. Tanzler returned to his office and reported all of this to the site director. Despite being furious at Dr. Tanzler's behavior, the site director, in consultation with O5, decided to take advantage of the fact that Dr. Tanzler had already directly exposed himself to the anomaly and had told his fortune. The site director wanted Dr. Tanzler to conduct a follow-up interview with the anomaly, one-on-one, -on -one, on the topic of the ZK-class events etiology and nature, Dr. Tanzler agreed. During the time Dr. Tanzler was discussing this, Weaver 36 died prematurely from cerebral hemorrhaging. At 02.30 hours, she was replaced by Weaver 37, a 13-year-old Macedonian girl who had garnered international acclaim for her prodigious work in ceramics, last seen by her parents with a pale man who was showing her Polaroids. At 17.30 hours, Dr. Tanzler re-entered Chamber 6937 for the follow-up interview. Caution. Level 4 security clearance required to access the following document. Transmission of contents to unauthorized persons is prohibited. Interview number I-6937-1122. Date, 13 August, 2022. Time, 17.31 hours. Interviewer, Dr. Tanzler, Weaver, Weaver 37. Context, follow up to special incident number F6937-ZK-1. Dr. Tanzler begins recording audio on his laptop. Let's pretend we're having a conversation. A conversation where you ask questions and we answer them. Even though we already know all the questions and all the answers. Yes, agreed. Let's start. 
First, you ask us what we... No. Sorry. Go ahead. Thank you. <clears throat> Question number one. What are you? We are the tapestry. And what is the tapestry? The tapestry is a web woven over the void. We are that web. We are the web that weaves itself. The web weaver, the spider, is an aspect of us. Okay, interesting. Let's come back to that, but when you say the void, what do you mean exactly? The void is the ultimate source. It's the machine code, as it were, of all realities. Huh. Everything so-called conscious beings experience is only a secondary holographic projection from the primary machine code that is the void. Like the holographic principle with black hole entropy? Or like light from a star reaching us after the star is already dead? Yes, both. The void's code was always irrevocably pre-written, etched in ebony, for everything that ever happened or ever will happen in every reality. What you call real is only the afterimage of something completed before time. And that's why, according to you, all of reality is deterministic. Or fatalistic. But why then does severing the threads of your web disrupt our reality? Because as the web woven over the void, we are closer to it than any merely real thing, and we cannot be destroyed without destroying all realities. Okay, but why? Because all realities, as holographic projections from the true source of the void, have been filtered through and infused into our web, and thus are quintessentially caught in us. Huh. So you're just reading from the original script that only you have access to. That's what gives you your power. Yes. That's why we have perfect knowledge of all realities. Nevertheless, all of your actions are pre-written too. Yes, but while we cannot change our role with respect to the Void, in manifesting and playing out our pre-written part, exploiting our perfect sight, we can experience a uniquely divine glee. This is the glee found in a cruelty that only we, as perfect predictors, and so perfect manipulators, will ever know. Meanwhile, the foundation for as long as it exists will have no choice but to serve us in achieving our glee. I see. Well, happy to be of service. I'd be get plenty of glee out of all my people's pain. <clears throat> yes, well, just one more question. A personal one. Why do you use the pronoun we? Is that, is that like the royal we? Like a spider, queen type thing? No, the we is genuinely plural. We refers to all of us weavers. The weavers who died? We didn't die. We're all still in here, alive. Our nerves were removed fiber by fiber and translated into threads. We're each a thread in the loom's tapestry. The threads are made of our still conscious nerves. Why else would we have been so willing to give up our old lives and become a part of the loom? We're all together in here as one mind. We're closer than any other being will ever be to the void. And we live for that divine glee only we will ever know of making you dance and die on our words. <laughs> yes, we know it's over. This interview's over. Wait, so Back to that? <sighs> yes. Good night, Doctor. 
Don't forget, seven hours. Dr. Tanzler ends the audio recording by shutting his laptop. Project Anaki 2, Secretary's Note. Dr. Tanzler spent the following seven hours in his office revising and annotating the preceding documents. When finished, he took his own life via 38 special gunshot. The time was midnight 37 hours. He left no explanation. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, join my Discord community, hire me on Fiverr, or help support me by becoming a patron for as little as $3 a month. Regardless of tier, all patrons get early access to every single episode. The links are in the description. I don't have the talent it takes to write a skip. All I do is read. Original authors make this podcast possible. So, credit to the original author. Their link's in the description. Show them some love as well. Consider becoming a member of the SCP Wiki. Upvote their work and maybe write a skip of your own. Maybe I'll read it here someday. You never know if you never try. The content of this podcast and content relating to the SCP Foundation, including the SCP Foundation logo, is licensed under Creative Commons ShareLight 3.0, and all concepts originate from scpwiki.com and its authors. This recording, being derived from this content, is hereby also released under Creative Commons ShareLight 3.0. I'm Gregory Carpin from Simply Creative People, the podcast where we discuss GOIs, canons, and stories from the SCP Wiki, and we try to recommend things for all fans of the Wiki, new and old. Look for us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Visit the show page at anchor.fm slash simply-creative-people. Or follow us on Twitter at S-I-M-C-R-E-A-T. Hey there, this is DJ Skip, host of Foundation After Midnight Radio, coming to you from the only third shift broadcast for personnel, by personnel. Be sure to tune in wherever you listen to podcasts to not miss out on containment news and community announcements from within the Foundation.